Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians, and uh, we will remain standing for the reading of the Word uh, in just a few moments. Two verses. Now, let me just bring you up to date as you're turning to find that. Uh, we have been in a study of 1 Thessalonians for several months now, and we make, a, we make a turn, we make a transition. The first part of the book, the first three chapters, Paul is basically just exuding uh, joy. He's rejoicing over the, um, the way that the Thessalon the people at Thessalonica have received the Word and are living in the Word. And then he, he changes directions, and for the next couple of chapters, uh, we're going to be looking into heavy exhortation, application, and all of the rest of that. For the next three weeks, for example, uh, today we're going to be talking about a life that pleases God. How do we discover that? And um, then for the next several weeks, a part of that is the call for purity. I'm going to use two weeks to go through that, that portion of Scripture because it is so vitally important, the call to purity uh, included in this, the devastation of impurity. Uh, my plan is to handle this with uh, as much discretion as I can, so don't worry when we get there. Uh, we will be using terminology that is uh, acceptable for the children and adults alike, and we will understand what that has to do with. And uh, then in our prayer in just a few minutes after we read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, we're going to pray for Melissa Kendall. We've been praying for her for the last several weeks, and uh, she has been looking for a date to get back to uh, Southeast Asia and uh, finally, it looks like she's got some dates on the book, and so you want to pray for her because she'll be leaving, we think, on August the 29th and traveling uh, back to her home away from home, and she's excited about it, so we'll pray for her, and you pray for her in the days ahead. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, finally... Finally doesn't mean in the end he's got a lot more to go. He means he's just changing gears, as I said a few moments ago. Finally then, brothers, and that's generic, that's not just guys. He could say brethren and sistren, I guess. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. This is important in Paul's mind, that you that as you have received from us how you ought to live and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. The New American Standard says that you excel even more. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Father, uh, we praise you for your word. Your, your, your word is the rock-solid foundation of who we are and, and how we live in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, in today, as we look around us, we, we really do need a miracle. And so I ask you that you would show us from your word the greatest miracle being brought from 
rank idolatry into serving and worshiping the living God from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light of your beloved Son. And I pray that you would help us now shake out the cobwebs and physically and, and, and mentally even and, and then get beyond the, the mental and the emotional to the heart. We pray that the connection today in terms of living to please God would be from the heart and to the heart and in the heart. So, Lord, we thank you for this and pray now that you would bless this time, even as you have blessed the time leading up to now. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we also lift up our sister Melissa to you and pray that you would help her in, in the days between now and the, the departure date, that you would, um, Lord, protect her. You, you know the issues that she's had. So protect her and allow her to get on that airplane and then make the, the necessary connections and get back uh, to her beloved Indonesia as quickly as possible. So, Lord, we thank you that we can make this prayer, all of it, in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I said in my uh, prayer a, a second ago something about a miracle. I, do, do, you, do you feel like you need a miracle today? Now, some of you are going, wait, 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 wait. He doesn't usually ask that kind of a question. Is he going Joel Osteen on us or, no, no, I assure you, no. You, you look around with all that's going on. I don't know about you, but I have this, this mental picture of what's happening in my mind, and it's like these threads are going all out here, and they're connected to all of the issues out there that I really sometimes feel very, very overwhelmed about. And in a time like this, I, I think there are people looking for a miracle. They're looking for some kind of change. And, and as I said a few moments ago, the Apostle Paul has just finished three chapters of this book rejoicing, listen to me now, over the miracle that took place in Thessalonica. You say, miracle? I, I, I've read through that. I don't know that I ever see the word miracle mentioned. Folks, what we're talking about and what we need today, you and I and everybody else, we need the miracle of transformation. Amen. You go back to, to chapter 1, verse 9, and as we went through that, if you'll remember, I listed 10 things that, that, that Paul said, this is what you're doing. This is what was happening in your life. We know that, he was wondering for a while, but we know that. He knew it because Timothy went there, got the report, and came back. And so he gets to the end of these 10 things in chapter 1, and he said, miracle of miracles, here's what you did. You turned to God from idolatry, from idols to serve the living and the true God. I, I read for you earlier out of Colossians 1.13. I'll say it again. He delivered us. Now, I want you to personalize this. I'm going to just give you a heads up because I don't think that the average person in this room or the average Christian living in Western culture believes that we were really delivered out of idolatry to serve 
worship and serve the living God. Maybe out of other things, other kinds of sins. But look, we were all held in the domain of darkness. And we've been delivered from that and transferred to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his beloved son. Now, let me just tell you something. This is why I use the word miracle at the very beginning. No one leaves the grip of worshiping idols and just starts worshiping and serving the true God. No one just escapes the bondage of Satan's domain over his life. No one just decides one day out of the blue, you know, I think I'll start living like I was created to live, and I think I'll just start, you know, pleasing God. Most of us in this room understand this. It's not an act of your decision. It takes a miracle. The miracle, just like happened to these people, these believers, the miracle of hearing and receiving the gospel and being born again. Let me remind you, and for some of you, this is maybe your first or second time. When we started this study, we, we looked at the culture. And at least one commentator, several of them said that there were probably in Thessalonica, and that's why he puts this at the end of chapter 1, there were probably around, get this, 30,000 gods or idols. Do you remember the story? It, it happened in Acts 17. You don't need to turn there. You can jot it down. But one of the neat things about studying this book is that we get a, we get a picture of what happened in Thessalonica. And then later on in Berea, and then later on in Athens. And we find out that when, when Paul was there, he was left alone just by himself. And it, and it starts out by saying when he walked through the city, his heart was stirred because of all of the idols. Now, I don't know that anybody is thinking this going back through our study and going back to the book of Acts, where did Paul first go when he went into Macedonia? He went to Thessalonica. Where did he go first to preach? And I'm going somewhere with this before we even get to our main two points. This is important. Where did he go? Does anybody remember? Did he just stand out on the street corner? Did he go like in Athens to the Areopagus? He went to the synagogue. All right, now I want you to just follow me and ask the question, why would Paul say this about the Thessalonians, the ones who had gotten saved? It said you came out of idolatry and you started worshiping and serving the, the living God. Wait, weren't there Jews there? And normally we don't think, again, of the Jews being idol worshipers. And here's the question I pose to you. Were the Jews of that day idol worshipers? I'm not giving, getting much of a response. I, I, hopefully the wheels are turning. I, I don't want this just to be a, an exercise in me talking. I, I want you to be thinking about this. 
You say, well, now, wait a minute. If we go back into Jewish history, you know in the Old Testament that they were just caught up in idolatry over and over and over again. First Israel, after the kingdom split, and first Israel was carried away into slavery because of what besetting sin? Idolatry. And then Judah gets in on the act. You know, Israel didn't have a, a single good king. Judah had some good kings, but over and over again, a king would come along, they would smash all the idols, they would tear down the Asherah, they would do all of the things, and then in the next kingship, they would just start all over again. But when they came back from exile, there were no graven images, follow me, there were no graven, graven images in the synagogues. But I ask it again. Were Jews idol worshipers? The answer is yes, and I'll come to this in just a minute. Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue first and preach first to the Jews. Again, I'm going to try to make another point. Why? Was Paul... Did Paul think that maybe the Jews would be more receptive than those pagans out there bowing down to idols? What do you think? Did he think maybe that the, the Jews would be easier to reach than the Gentiles? I, I think there's this, this kind of a, a feeling that, well, yeah, he went to his own because he could relate to them, and so therefore they might be more receptive to him. Who, were the, who was the group of people that dogged Paul most. It was the Jews. Killed him everywhere he tried to go. Now let me bring that up to today because it is key that we see this. I, I want you to keep that word miracle parked in the back of your brain. Which groups, I'm just going to give this to you as a, a kind of a broad question, which groups are most difficult to reach? I'm going to give you the names of some groups. They're most resistant to the gospel. Would it be Muslims? Jews? Hmm. Among those two, which do you think would be more resistant, less resistant, more difficult to reach, less difficult? How about tribal, tribal people, animists, who believe that just everything is God? How about Hinduism? I said the Thessalonians had 30,000 gods. It's estimated that all of the gods in Hinduism, there are about 3.3 million. Take your pick. How about just rank atheists? Now, I'm going to draw it in a little bit more. How about Catholics? Mm. Which is more difficult to reach? A Catholic who's lost, I'm assuming that he's lost, but he's a Catholic, he has that tradition, or a Muslim. How about Protestants? How about Baptists who fill our churches and who yet have not received that miracle of the new birth? Let me put it in another way, and this comes out of something that I have read over and over and over again. George Barna is one of the people that say that, and I've tried my best to get my arms around it, understand it. Which among these age groups, and I'd love to see who, who, who are represented here today, uh, I, I'm going to do a, a generational study for you. 
Which people among these age groups do you think are more difficult, less difficult, more resistant, less? Let's start with the greatest generation. That means you were born in 1901, 1927. We got any of the greatest generation, the GI generation? George Gilbert would have been here. He's gone today. How about the next generation? It's interesting. People born between 1928 and 1945. Let me see your hands. We don't have any, or are you asleep? Okay. Do you know what you're called, Carol? And this is not true of you. You're called the silent generation. Baby boomers. We have any baby boomers here? I'll raise my hand. Those born between 1946 and 1964, the students are saying, man, this is ancient history. I'm asking you which, because the experts out there, the generational experts are saying there is a group among all of these groups that's more difficult to reach. Let's move it on up. Gen X, born between 1965 and 1980. Got any Gen Xers? Oh, yeah, yeah, I see those hands. How about millennials born between 1981 and 96? Look at all the millennials. You know what? Oh, but I'll go ahead and finish it. Gen Z, 1997 to 2012, thereabouts. Generation Z over here. Now, I don't want to leave anybody out, so generation... Younger children, listen to me. If you were born between, say, the late, or the mid, like 2010 on to now, you're called Generation Alpha. I guess it's because you're just starting all over again. Okay. (laughs) Now, listen, I'm making a point before we we even get to the first two points. And they'll be quicker than this, I, I promise you. George Barna has said that the millennials, that this is in Western culture, particularly the United States, are more resistant to spiritual truth, to the gospel, than any other group. And when you think about it, you kind of think, well, yeah, the greatest generation, those are the, the people, and then the lost generation, they're more traditional, and maybe they're, you know, they, they kind of fit into the, the, the truths of the Bible in traditional ways and that kind of thing. That is the common perception today, that young people are more difficult to reach, more resistant to the gospel. Now, the question is, is that true? I mean, who am I to go up against George Barna? But I'm just, I just want to look at the scriptures. And Do you have that word miracle in the back of your mind? Among those groups, which is the most difficult to reach, the most resistant? Here's the answer, okay? I want you to look at this, and we're gonna, we looked at this verse last week. There are only two groups of people in the world, no matter where they live, no matter what their age, no matter what they've been through, this has been like this and will continue like this. There are only, according to the Apostle Paul, two groups of people. Everybody here in this room, young or old, you are in one of these two groups of people. 
And this is why we ask the question about the Jews. Were they idol worshipers? Well, you're either this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is about all humanity. Here's the first group he mentions, and worshiped and served the creature or creation rather than worshiping and serving the creator who is blessed forever. If a person is an idol worshiper, and basically we know that there's no such thing as idols, other gods, there's only one God. And so when you boil it down, when you boil it down, you need to see that no one is born neutral. This is important, again, for rejoicing in the miracle that took place in the lives of the Thessalonians and in our lives. Everyone who is born, do you know how many people approximately were born yesterday? 353,000. I wanted to make sure my figure was right. Babies were born into the world, and guess which group they entered the world as? Worshiping and serving the creature. Lost is lost. I know that's a Bible word. Dead, spiritually dead, is spiritually dead. And so no, we know the reality that, that graven images, that pictures and that icons and all the rest of that kind of thing, as we said a few minutes ago, material objects that we believe in for them to give us a certain amount of power or authority. They become our gods. They become the gods of, of, of entire groups of people. Who are these people ultimately worshiping? Paul says it right here, the creature. And when you get specific, it's this creature. Before I was saved, I never bowed down to any kind of material objects. But I was guilty of idolatry. This goes way back. Lucifer was, basic, was basically guilty of this sin of idolatry when he said, hmm, you know what I think I'll do? I'll make myself like the Most High. Hmm. Whenever you usurp the authority of God and say, I'm my own ultimate authority, even if you hand it off to some lesser deities, you're guilty of worshiping yourself. Adam and Eve. By the way, guess why Satan has used this throughout the years with very few variations? Because it works so well. They're born like that. He said to Adam and Eve, of course, in their innocence, you will be like God. So, with all of that, that's why Paul is so excited. That's why every time someone is born again, every time we see a baptism, there is a level of excitement. There's clapping, cheering. There ought to be. You know why? Because what you have seen is the symbol of what took place in that person's heart, an absolute bona fide miracle. Paul was rejoicing. 
over people who were dead in their idolatry and the miracle happened of belief in Jesus Christ to be brought into life and enabled to turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, let, let me just stop and, and let you apply that for a minute. Okay, what that means is that the person sitting next to you, you want to do a little exercise? Just kind of, yeah, I saw people, a few of you looking. Some of you have forgotten who was sitting next to you. I saw that look, Mary. Do you realize that there are family members that, that are in this room right now? They're not neutral. No amount of antics or, or energy or theatrics or voice inflection, please hear, that will not give you the miracle for that loved one who does not know the Lord. And some of these that I'm talking about are children who have not yet come to the place of making their own profession of faith in Jesus Christ, turning away from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son. And I think sometimes we've forgotten that. I, I, I don't mean we as a church, but we in our evangelical world, it's just a, it's a transaction. It's a business transaction. It happens all the time. And we think that somehow our family, members who don't know the Lord are just kind of in neutral. According to Romans 1.25, there is no such thing as neutrality. Those people need a miracle. Your friends need a miracle. Have you ever thought of this? I, having gone to, to a foreign land, and, and many of you understand this, the first time that I was in Turkey, walking down the street, and, and the missionary that we were working with and I'd never thought of this, but this applies in our country too, in our surroundings. And the streets were just packed. This was in Istanbul. And he said, do you realize as you look around that everybody you're looking at, the likelihood is that there is not one other Christian in this entire mass of people. And all of a sudden, you just feel overwhelmed. At least I hope you do. That means driving down the street, that person in the other car. Think about, think about this sometimes. That person is either in Satan's camp, he is either an idolater worshiping himself, or he has been transferred into a new kingdom. He's been saved. I, I really think, and we're going to be doing some evangelism training later on this fall, uh, and, and I really think that that could do a world of good to help us think in those kinds of categories. Now, so that brings us up to chapter 4, verse 1. We've got two, two points, two verses, two points. That's why Paul was so excited. But here's what he says, and you've got to understand what he means by this. He uses the word ought. There is an oughtness to the Christian life. And we're going to define that in a minute because that has a, that has a really negative connotation when people start telling you, you ought 
to or you should do this or that, that people really do push back. But what Paul says under point one, you ought to have an urgency to live and to grow in a life that pleases God. Here's what he's saying to them. You already are pleasing God. And so I'm just going to say this to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ, and there is a part of you that is seeking to walk it, to live it, with the motivation ultimately to please God. Your radical turn from worshiping idols, and it is radical to worshiping God, He says to them, it's an example. Go back into chapter 1. It's an example. But here's what he says, and this is so huge for us. You haven't arrived, okay, Christian? Whether you're a Thessalonian or you're a Oklahomian. I'm not sure if that's a word. You haven't arrived, no matter how old you are. Sometimes with older people, that's what we kind of think. So Paul is saying, don't stop. You're doing it. You're doing well, but don't stop. Don't quit. Don't slow down. Keep on seeking to walk it. Keep on seeking to please God more and more. And I I like the word excel. Excel more and more in pleasing God. I think one of the saddest things that I ever hear from people who are church attenders, I don't know where their heart is, not judging one way or the other, and especially if you look at all of the people that we have on the rolls, it's a shame. We need to do better at, at trying to reach out and seeing if those persons are really even believers. But sometimes when we do and we talk to them, we will hear something like this. You know, Pastor, there was a time when I was really trying to walk with God. I was trying to please God, but I slowed down. Instead of every Sunday, unless providentially hindered. By the way, last week I spoke of this. The people who are born again want to be assembled together. And if you don't want to be assembled together with the body of Christ, there's something deficient in your profession of faith in Christ. You you ought to go back and examine it. And so people, they start slowing down. Instead of every week, it's every two weeks. Then it's every month. And then it's every three months. And then it's... Then it's Easter and Christmas only. And then it's just stop and they just slide back. You know, there are two ways to be backslidden. Students, do you understand the word backslide? Eh, Okay, not so much. How many of you adults understand? We grew up Baptist. We know what backslide means. It means that you're growing in Christ. And like, here's the picture. You stop and sin gets really attractive to you. And so you slide back. I think there is another picture that could be indicative of a lot of people in a lot of churches. Not this church, necessarily. But it's when people are growing. And see, what Paul is saying, I urge you to continue. Excel still more. 
and you come to a point and you just stop. Well, look at this picture. God, God, you've been walking with God, but God's going on in a sense because that's where he wants you to go. And so by the time you get to where you are, like I've just stopped, I've, you know, that kind of thing, God's way out there and you're here. It's the same distance as if you had slidden back. That's, that's sad. It's sad when Christians live a settled-for lifestyle. That's what Paul is saying. Guys, you, you, you're doing so well. And I would say it to Heritage. Heritage, you're doing so well. Excel. You, you, you know what? The, when I looked it up, the first definition of Excel was do better than usual. It has some more, but I like that. It's short, sweet, and simple. Do better than usual. And boy, how that could apply to the church. When people have a settled for kind of Christianity, and that leads to having a settled for marriage and being a settled for mom or dad or grandparent or friend. And sometimes people, well, what are you doing this Sunday? Well, I'm going to church as usual. I think all of us have been there, you know, the, the, just the things going on around us. We, I, I think we've all been there, but Paul is saying, don't let that happen to you. Don't ever just come to church to do church as usual. Paul is not talking here about being saved. You've already been justified, but there is a natural outflow of growth. And what happens is, you know the parable of the sower. You know that parable. And people that are truly born again, they reach a point of 30 and 30-fold fruitfulness. Now, sometimes that's what God has for them, and I recognize that. But maybe you've reached 30-fold and you've said, wow, I'm doing quite a bit. I think I'll just take it easy. Maybe God wants you to be a 60-fold follower. Maybe God wants you to be a hundredfold follower. You know, that's for the children as well as the students, as well as for all of us. And by the way, you never get too old that you shouldn't excel more and more. Here's what Paul said in another place. He said, and, and this, if I have time, I'm going to come back and read this passage because you need to get the context of this. We make it our aim to please God. There are a lot of reasons you can do what you do in the Christian life. But try to get beyond the ought to. Try and do what you do out of a sense of desire. I, I, you know, the, the obvious, and we're going to get into this as we get into chapter 4, but, but there is an obvious parallel to marriage. And I've shared this illustration before. It's from John Piper. But you know, if I came home for our anniversary, which is coming up in December, and I brought flowers, and I said to Jan, I want you to dress up. We're going someplace really, really special. She would respond, because I know her. She would respond best, oh, honey, that, that, is, that is just so wonderful. Now, what if I stopped and said, oh, oh, 
It's my duty. I ought to do this. I should do that. I'd be wearing those flowers. Yeah. If I asked Jan, honey, do I have to kiss you? What's going to be her answer? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know because I'd never ask her that. But here's what I think she would mean in whatever answer she gave. Yes, you have to kiss me, but not that kind of have to. That's what Paul is saying. You ought to do this, but not that kind of ought to because you've been born again. You have a new center of your being. That This, this kind of life of pleasing God ought to flow from everything that you do. Why do you do the things that maybe you consider religious or good or moral or churchy or anything like that? Why do you do the things you do? To fulfill some legalistic ought to or to please the one who has saved you? Not seeking to earn anything. It's already been, it's already been earned on the cross by Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, and uh, he's, he's going to say more of this, and we'll talk to, about, uh, talk to this uh, uh, next week. Uh, people say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm moving on, but I, I'm just not sure what to do. I, I don't know what to do. What is God's will for me? Don't despair. Let's move on to verse 2. The Bible alone gives you everything you need to know God's will to live a life that is pleasing to God. Period. How did the Thessalonians know what to do to live in one of the most wicked cultures ever? He says it right here. You received from us. What did they receive? You received from us how you ought to walk. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He was talking about depositing in them, with them, the very Word of God. And we believe, I would say everybody in this room, we believe that between the covers of this book is everything that we need for all people of all ages in all places at all times. And there will be general instructions. Let, let me just give you a, a picture of that. There will be general instructions in this book for you. Don't walk any longer like you used to. You were a Gentile. You were an idol worshiper. The general instruction is don't walk any longer like that. So how do you do that? You put off the old self because it's dying, it's rotting, it's corrupting, he says. And you put on the new self. Now, that's general. There, there's another verse that goes along with that. And, and this is one of the most incredible encouragements is that if you determine, okay, I, I'm not going to live like I used to live. I'm going to put off and then I'm going to put on. But I feel so powerless in doing that. Well, the Bible, this book promises help. He says, therefore, my beloved, 
is you have also obeyed not, not now, uh, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what we're talking about. But look at the wonderful promise, for it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for what? His good pleasure. He knows exactly what he's after. He knows exactly. And listen, God is not playing cat and mouse with you concerning his will. The number one thing above all else is that you live a life that is pleasing to him. And you use the book to get there. And that's why it says, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for everything you need, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that you can be everything you need to live the way he wants you to live. Now, I, I did this and I marked in my Bible. Do you know that Paul has 20 in, in, in chapter 4 through chapter 5? He has 20 specific instructions. That's not all that's in the Bible, in the New Testament. But he has 20 at least. These are good. These, this would be a good place to start. Okay. For example, like I said, for the next two weeks, we're going to be examining abstaining from sexual immorality. That's a good place to start in a culture that's as saturated as ours is. And then he goes on to talk about something else, loving. What does it mean to love? Boy, I'll tell you, in these days, knowing what God's Word says about how to love others is absolutely essential. And then he talks about work. My goodness. Tells us what to do. And then he talks about death. These are all instructions that are for us. And I, I don't know that I have time to go through all of them. We will in the days ahead. How to live when Jesus is coming back soon. And a lot of us think that he's coming back soon. So he's going to tell you what to do. How to live. And then he goes on. How to encourage people. How to respect leaders. How to, oh my goodness. I, I, I like this one. Parents, you can say, this is in the Bible, kids. One of the things he's going to teach about is admonishing the idol, not I-D-O-L, the idol, the unmotivated. Another word is undisciplined. And so the next time, children, your parents want you to be more disciplined and not idle, this could be for all of us. Paul gives instruction about how to admonish the idol. And just on and on and on, seeking to do good, rejoicing always. Oh, it, it just, it, it, so much is there. But what I'm trying to say is this, living a life that is pleasing to God. He gives specifics in case you don't know. Okay, one last thing, and then I'm a, uh, let's just turn over to... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 5. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read that verse for you and uh, just set the context. Because as I read this, it was so helpful. Uh, people, there is always a right way and a wrong way to do things. Is there, just in your, in your interpretation of the world, are a lot of people saying a lot of different things for you to do? Are they? 
Are those people saying my way is the right way and their way is the wrong way? I'm telling the truth and they're not telling the truth. How do you, how do you determine? Because God will tell you in his word so that you can make it your aim to please God. Let me just read this little passage of Scripture, uh, scripture because Paul sets the context in this and then we'll pray and respond to what he has told you to do today specifically. 2 Corinthians 5.1, beginning with that, for we know that if the, the tent, that's his body, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, this, this is just so applicable to me personally. I hope it is to you too. We have a building from God. Wow. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, in this body, we groan. And you don't have to be old to groan. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked or unclothed. For while we are still in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Wow, that's pretty good so far. Let's read on. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. That's what grabbed me. I, I, I can get discouraged about what, what do we do in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. But he says, no, we're always of good courage. Why? We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So here's, here's the, uh, the whole conclusion to all of that. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Could, could, I, could I appeal to you? If you're here today and you're without Christ, you cannot please Him. We find that out from the book of Romans. You cannot please him if you're not in Christ. So if you're here today without Christ, I, I, I want to ask you, I, I beg you, understand that as the Holy Spirit shows you that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You deserve judgment. You deserve punishment. But then if it's been revealed to you that Jesus Christ, God's Son, died on the cross of Calvary for sinners like you and like me. And believing in him, believing in his finished work, his blood, his broken body, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, you can be transformed from the kingdom, from the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then that's where it begins, and that's where most of us are right now, the commitment, the urging to live for the rest of your days a life that is pleasing to God. If you're already doing that, just do it a little bit more today. And then when you wake up tomorrow, look back, okay, what did I do? What? Do it a little bit more and a little bit more. And watch the growth in the ministry that will take place. Live a life that is pleasing to God. Father, I thank you for the reality of 
your salvation, the miracle. God, I, I know myself, and it's not just a theological reality. This is personal. I, I know that I, I was a self-idolater. I worshiped the ground that I walked on. God, thank you that you came along and showed me the futility of that. And you changed my life. You, you did a miracle. You revealed to me the living Lord Jesus and uh, set me on a road, a path. It's a journey. And uh, haven't always done what I wanted to do, but thank you, Lord, that I can today make that commitment. Whatever level I've achieved, whatever wherever I am, that I can excel still more. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. They would commit to do the same thing. Thank you, Father, for this. Thank you for our time of worship. Now we put a cap on it uh, by hearing some things that we need to in terms of ministry opportunities that are coming up. And um, then we'll sing and then we go out from here. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen.